0: To our feet heritage let's give God some praise. One, two, three, four. a mighty fortress is our God.
1: This morning, I want to welcome everybody that's here. If you're a visitor and you're with us, we want to extend to you a special welcome. If you're here on the pew of this church or via technology with us, we're encouraged that God, by His design, His sovereign intention, you're a part of what this morning's going to be about, and that's to honor Him. And as a body of believers, our pastors are encouraging us, and whether it's the singing or the greeting or the praying or the preaching, To live out what the scriptures teach. That we would love our neighbors. That we would love one another. That we would live a life out that's a testimony to our love for Christ. And so for all of us, that's a challenge, isn't it? And so may this morning be a part of that process of which God is making you more like his son. And in your singing and hearing the preaching and praying that after this day's over, you're more Christ-like. In your living, and you're focused in faith on the hope that we all have soon, soon for all of us to see Him in all of His glory. Amen. This, the Bible says about Him, and this is exciting, isn't it? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the Savior that you've come to worship. What a Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we've come this morning to honor you. We're so thankful that we're here and we're here because of grace. Not any of us have earned what we now enjoy and the promises that we now live our life based on. The hope that our Savior who himself created this world and holds it all together. Lord, you are the preeminent one. And we're so thankful that we call you our Redeemer. And we long to see you face to face. You've called us now by faith to walk. You sent your spirit to live in us. You've given us one another and the promises on which we base everything we do on. And Lord, you've called us to do one thing, just to believe you and trust you. And you're worthy of it. And we bless you in it. And this morning, might Your great name be honored and praised and adored. Move in us in ways that separate us from everything that's temporary, and focus on everything that's eternal. For Your great glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Well, last week we learned that God used this song in the conversion of one of our children here at Heritage, Aaron Faulkner. We heard her testimony before she was baptized. And I think about God's love for children. He's, he, Jesus said that if anyone offended one of these little ones who believed in him, <laughs> that it would be better for them if an anvil was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the depths of the sea. And about how their angels behold the face of the Father in heaven always. I think that that makes this song worthy of our singing it today. Let's rise to our feet and sing this song.
2: Oh, glorious day. voice
0: acclamation. Sing it. When Christ shall
2: come
3: time to time, we have a section in our worship called God at Work because we want to recognize what he's doing, thank him for it, and pray for his continued blessing upon it. And this morning, I want to bring a brother and a sister uh, to your attention. I'm going to ask each of them to come and stand on one side or the other. Jonathan and Sister Joy. <clears throat> these, these two dear musicians are very gifted, but the most beautiful thing is that they've given their gifts to the glory of God. Joy is a faculty member at KWC, recently was honored to be adjunct faculty member of the year. I think she's, if she's not the most gifted pianist in Owensboro, she's got to be very close to it. In my judgment, she is. You can pay me for that later. <laughs> I love you. Um, Jonathan is an extremely gifted musician in many regards and has a wonderful voice, and they know that at KWC. And recently, Diane and I, and actually Nancy Chapel, went to a uh, a concert of nothing but spirituals. And when I heard Jonathan sing this particular spiritual, my heart was gripped. It's a very simple song about... Angels watching over me day and night. Day and night, angels watching over me. I got to thinking about that. And I realized how biblical it really was. We don't know a lot about angels. But there's more in the Bible about them than we realize. Uh, I was reading this morning of some of the things they do. They praise the Lord and do his commandments. They rejoice in the salvation of men. Their messengers... Of God to men, they execute God's purposes, they gave the law, they ministered to Christ, they will accompany him <clears throat> at his second coming. they are present at church services, they take a great interest in divine truth and learn through the church and this one in particular, they minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. That's what Hebrews 114 says. Now the whole concept of guardian angels probably has been abused and made to mean more than the Bible is explicit about. But the concept of them guarding and serving is still biblical. It was an angel who woke up Elijah and gave him food and drink twice. It was an angel who stopped the mouths of lions when Daniel was in the den. If we only knew how much they serve us we would probably be shocked and overwhelmed. So in a few minutes Jonathan's going to sing that simple spiritual and as you listen to it and joy accompanies I want you to thank God in your heart for whatever ministry angels may have in your life and I know you'll be blessed by the music and I'm gonna ask that at the end of this particular Ministry that the appropriate response will be praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, something along those lines. This is not a performance, this is a ministry. They are going to help us understand the truth of angelic ministry. So, uh, Joy and Jonathan, thank you for what you do at KWC. In a few minutes after you're through, I'm going to pray, and we're going to pray for God's continued blessing on your witness and your ministry there. And I hope, congregation, you will continue to hold them up. So if you will just go to your places uh, in a few moments, I'm coming back to pray.
0: Before I sing it, I just want to just thank God for his angelic ministry to me. And thank you all for graciously receiving me. When I moved here to lead worship for this church, I didn't know it was going to happen. And, um, when I, in order to keep my job, I had to go to school. And then the Lord just opened doors by his grace in his providence for me to get a scholarship to KWC to sing and learn, learn how to sing better. And uh, you know, I was never a good student. I thought I was going to fail at school. You know, in high school, I barely graduated. And in college, I never did much. And uh, going back to school was always a dead end in my mind because I thought, well, I'll waste my money, I'll fail, I'll, I'll drop out, and then I'll have debt to pay and stuff like that. And so that's why I never went back to school. And somehow, by God's grace, I'm getting a 4.0. Yeah. And... Uh, and the Lord has helped me to do excellent at this for his glory. And uh, he's given me a witness there. And, uh, and Joy has always been there. She's always had a witness there. But, and we, we have such a partnership now, the two of us at, at KWC. And it's really a blessing. And so I just want to thank God for his angelic ministry to me as I sing this.
3: pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the ministry of angels in our lives. Um, We are determined, we believe by a wisdom from you, not to worship angels. We know that someday we will even be a part of judging the angels, an overwhelming thought. But we thank you that you have sent them to be ministering spirits in the lives of those who shall be heirs of salvation. So thank you for every time that you have blessed us unbeknownst through the ministry of angels. We worship the ultimate angel, the capital A angel, the messenger sent from heaven itself to become the word of God and to inspire the scriptures. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are the ultimate messenger. We praise you. Lord, let your blessing rest heavily upon Joy and Jonathan at Kentucky Wesleyan College. We pray that their witness will be sterling. We pray that it will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, bless us as we continue to worship. We ask for a rich blessing again upon Pastor Mark as he comes to help us see again how we are not only obligated but privileged to turn every mundane act of life into an act of worship by doing it for your glory. Help us to understand and help us to do it better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. To that end, let's stand to our feet. Uh, we're going to be doing a new song. It's a Gettys' hymn. It's about dedicating our secular work to God. It's asking God to bless the work of our hands. It's it's about, yes, dedicating our secular work to him and asking him to bless it. Pastor Mark preached about that two weeks ago, I believe. So we just recently heard about that in this series. Extraordinary work that we can do our work, our secular everyday work for the Lord and that he can bless it and use it for his glory. So let's sing about that. work was dedicated to the Lord.
4: Our scripture reading this morning is from two passages, James 1, 16 through 18 and 1 John 5:21. If you picked up one of the Bibles from the back, it's found on pages 1011 and 1024. First 1 James 1:16 1, to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then 1 John 5, little children, keep yourself from idols amen.
5: Well, just a word of thanks um, to God on my behalf as well. My wife reminded me, I wasn't exactly sure of the date, but it was one year ago today that I had my car accident. And um, I'm thankful to be standing here and thankful for God's angelic ministry in my life, watching over that car that day and not taken me to glory what I would consider prematurely. Um, And so I'm very thankful for that and thankful for the way God has gifted. And just as we sang that song, the way he has gifted ordinary people to do ordinary things that make massive differences in people's lives and glorify God. I'm thankful for Mark McGinnis and his surgery on my leg. And as I await the prospect, just this fall of having 100% recovery and being able to totally move and walk and bend and do all the stuff that I can 95% do right now. And thankful for Nathan Ladd and his gift of physical therapy and being able to diagnose and treat. Those are gifts of God. And I'm thankful that those brothers didn't go into pastoral ministry because that's not the place that God has called most of his people. He's called most of his people to do ordinary life in an excellent, God-honoring way that serves the the purpose of God in the world, that serves people, and that glorifies His great name. So just all these aspects that we've seen this morning even tie together, I think, this series so well. And so i got one more sermon for us. And uh, this morning I want us to look at the subject of, I couldn't think of a better name for it, stuff. It's sort of an umbrella term, admittedly. You know, it's, uh, what do you mean by stuff? I mean all the physical legitimate earthly pleasures of life. Trips to holiday world. Food, sleep, marriage, family, work, all the things we've heard about in this series. Twinkies for those of you who like such things. You know any legitimate earthly pleasure some of you might not consider that legitimate or earthly at all. It was it's not legitimate, it's sinful, and it was formed in a pra- factory somewhere, so it's definitely not earthly. But all these legitimate earthly pleasures, what are we to do with stuff like that? What are we to do with so much of the things we enjoy, hobbies and music and movies and sunny days and bike rides and the beach and the pool and things like that and sports and things that we enjoy and interact with, but, but for so many Christians, do so with a little bit of guilt, and the reason that we do so with some guilt, I believe, is because passages like these. 1 John two fifteen to 17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever or 2 timothy 4:10 we hear paul's warning to timothy embedded in the biography of demas for demas second timothy 4:10 in love with this present world has deserted me james 4:4 you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Colossians 3, 1-3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then there's other passages that even compound that even further and teach us that our only desire is to be for God. Psalm 27.4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 73.25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. But then we have another passage in the New Testament, equally as authoritative, equally as inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Seems like those passages are a little bit dissonant, that they don't fit together. So the question becomes, how then should we relate to God's gifts? How should we relate to the stuff of earthly life? Should we enjoy God in everything that He provides, or should we desire only God well it 's that question that I want to come to this morning as we wrap up this series on daily life for the glory of God, and I hope that it will hit a lot of the areas that we perhaps haven 't hit so far in this series. There are really two objectives I have for the sermon this morning, okay Let me give you those two objectives, two goals. first of all, I want to speak to those of you here this morning who lean away from engagement with creation, and default towards a kind of ascetic lifestyle. In other words, you look upon earthly things with suspicion, you, you almost lump everything under the category of friendship with the world and love for the world, and you have a hard time enjoying the, the things of everyday life that God gives us to enjoy. You are highly attuned to the danger of worldliness and consumerism and materialism. And my goal this morning is to remind you that God's gifts are good and ought to be received gladly. So that's the first objective I want to do. Secondly, I want to speak to those who don't even have a struggle like this. Perhaps it's because you treat the danger of greed and idolatry and worldliness lightly. And you're far too comfortable with the worldliness that's around you and within you. And you treat luxuries and comforts like their necessities. And you need to be reminded of the danger of idolatry. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to try to strike a balance between warning and encouragement. I want to warn us that when it comes to the stuff of everyday life, we just can't enter in neutrally. We have to enter in Christianly. Because Jesus bought all of us, and He's buying this whole world and he's redeeming us and this whole world. So we enter in from a specifically Christian framework, being informed by what the Bible teaches and being shaped by that. And so let me start with the negative. I'm going to spend just very little time on that, then I'm going to turn to the positive. My two points this morning are the danger of enjoying stuff without God. That's the first point, the danger of enjoying stuff without God. And the second point is the delight of enjoying stuff with God. And I'm just going to spend a very brief time on the danger, because I think for the vast majority of us to hear this morning, we need to hear a word about the delight of enjoying stuff with God. So let me start with the danger. Would you go with me to Romans chapter 1, and what we're going to do in Romans 1 is just spend a, just, a, just a short period of time unpacking what idolatry is and where it comes from. Now I want us to start off the sermon a bit on a negative note and un- underscore the very real danger that is present in our interaction with a fallen creation. Because if if you haven't you know lived here the last week, you you'll notice that things aren't quite as they should be, right? This world as it was created and intended by God is not functioning that way, and so we as Christians enter in and we live within the in the context of an of a fallen creation, not an unfallen creation. So therefore, our interaction must be. Uh, understood in that perspective. So Romans 1 teaches us uh, what idolatry really is, and I want to get a definition of it from verse 25. Notice what Paul says here, because they exchange, this is talking about unbelievers and us in our pre-Christian condition, before we came to Christ, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So this is at the heart of what idolatrous, fallen, non-Christian man does, okay? We separate the gift from the giver, and we enjoy the gift to the exclusion of the giver. That is the definition of idolatry. It is taking something that God has made, perverting it, twisting it to serve ourselves, rather than using it, enjoying it, delighting in it as a way to serve Him. Idolatry, then, is the enjoyment of creation to the exclusion of the Creator for the sake of false worship. The heart of idolatry, then, is that we receive creation not as a gift, which is the way we are supposed to receive it, but as a God. We set the creation... And the Creator, in a scale of values and worship, what is worthy of my life, and the creation weighs more and we give ourselves to that. And that's idolatry. God created things to be received as gifts from Him for which He would be thanked. Remember, that was where idolatry started. Verse 19, Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. See, we're supposed to look at the things of earth, look at life, look at creation and see God. See the invisible attributes of God made visible, namely his power How great he is to have created a world with such lavish delights. And yet that's not what fallen man does. Notice what they do. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that are made. So they are without excuse for although, here's what happened. They knew God. Verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. See, that's what creation is supposed to do. Lead us to honor God. Lead us to give thanks to God. See, in, but in our sin, in our idolatry, we separate gift from giver and worship gift. Turn it into a god. Use it for our own ends. Creation, rather than being a means of enjoying the creator, becomes a rival to the creator. And God does not like that. We become fixated and entranced on God's good gifts, seeking in them something we will never be able to find. See, why does God not delight in our idolatry as, unf- as fallen people? Because it says the creation is worth more than the creator. What God has made is more valuable and great than God himself, and that's an assault to the glory of God. That's a slap in his face. It would be you. It would be like someone, to give an illustration. It would be look. It would be like someone draw, drew a great portrait of you, and it was a good portrait. It looked. It wasn't a caricature. You didn't have big nose and big eyes and all that stuff. It was a normal picture, and you gave it to your wife and your kids. Say it was of the husband. Say I had a great picture. My, I don't know why I would do that, and I wanted it hung in the middle of my living room. But no, I gave it as a gift to my family, and my family said you can leave now. We don't need you anymore. We got a picture of you. We're going to hang it in the room. We'll see you every day. And, but it's a great picture. I mean, you'd feel slighted like, hey, that picture is just supposed to reflect me. It's not supposed to be me. Well, take that 10,000 times up and now apply it to God. That's what we do. We take his image, what he's, what he's imprinted in his creation, the, the joys and delights that are meant to lead us to him, and we say, well, I'll take those. And we ignore the giver. And that's an affront to God. It's an affront to his value. You would feel slighted if that were done to you. And God feels slighted when it's done to him as well. And here's the ironic thing, is that the separation of gift and giver ruins our enjoyment of both. It ruins our enjoyment of both. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote. Perhaps you've heard it. He says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. What does he mean by that? He means that if we put first things first, creator, God, glory, majesty, value, importance, worth, if we put him central, we get creation thrown in. We will interact with creation in a way that glorifies God. And God will be happy to dispose his pleasures and delights of his creation to us. Because he knows we'll steward them well. However, if we put second things first, namely creation, we have lost both first and second things. We will lose our ability to enjoy creation and we'll lose the creator. And that's why idolatry is insanity, Idolatry is insanity because creation cannot be fully enjoyed independent of the creator. See, people have just got to go for all the gusto in life. Man, I just want to, I got one life to live. I'm going to burn it up, man. I'm going to go after joy and pleasure, but I don't want God. (laughs) Well, why don't you just take a gun and blow your head out? Really? Because that's what you're doing. You're trying to find in creation something you cannot find in God himself that you must find in God himself first who will then lead you back to creation and really be able to mine out its delights and joys. That's why idolatry is insane because it ruins our enjoyment of the gift that we've turned into a God and it turns in on us. Now, I just want to make an appeal at the beginning of this sermon because I know some of you out here are not, you you might claim the name of Christian, but, but Christ is not at the center of your life. He's not driving you he's not leading you, you're not following him, you're not being a disciple of him, you're not pattering your life after him, you'd claim the name Christian because you live in Owensboro. And I want to encourage you and call you this morning to recognize what is beneath this religious veneer. Sorry, knock my own glasses off. What is beneath this religious veneer, which is a heart of idolatry. If you are after creation in this way, if you are seeking from creation... Young people seeking from creation what can only be found in the creator first. Look, get first things first, okay? Get first things first, and you'll get second things thrown in. If you want to get second things first, you're going to ruin your enjoyment of both and ruin yourself in the process. And God doesn't want that from you, and we don't want, you, we don't want that from you as God's church. So we invite you, turn from your idolatry. This is, how, what, this is what it means to become a Christian. We turn from second things. We turn from our delight in what creation offers us. And we turn to the creator. And we honor him. And we give him thanks. And we surrender to him. And we acknowledge he's the true king. He's the true lord. He's the true master. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He decides what's going to happen. This is what happened to me at 15 years old. By God's grace, this was the theology that I didn't understand but what, at the time, but what was happening to me. I remember walking into that church with my grandmother as a 15-year-old kid. Never having been in church much in my whole life. Didn't know the gospel. Didn't know anything about the Bible. Didn't know who Jesus was. And this guy started to talk about a creator God. A God who made the world as it is. And I'm like, I don't know him. I don't know him. And that's that's not good. Because it's like trying to figure out how to drive a car without ever reading the instruction manual. I mean, how silly is that? And here I am as a 15-year-old kid my whole life metaphorically, out in front of me, you know? And I'm just like, boy, I'm, first of all, he's telling me that I'm not right with this God and that I don't know him and that I need to know him and I'm listening to this guy and by God's grace, light bulbs start coming on for me. And I called out to the Lord. said, God, you're the creator. You made me. I'm yours. Teach me what it is to be saved whatever he's talking about and god did it and god will do that for you Amen. call out to him he loves to do stuff like this this is like gets his a1 attention wait hold on sinner calling out and he he does that and then he brings us to a place where we are rescued from our idolatrous hearts and inclinations, and he places himself at the center of our lives, and then we begin to live out a new freedom under his lordship. And so I just call you and invite you to do that. If you don't know how to do that, find me, talk to me, talk to somebody else around here, we can help you. We want to help you get to know this God, because we want you to be in right relationship with him and right relationship with what he's made. And we want you to be fully human. We really want you to be fully human to his glory. So that's the danger. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the delight of enjoying stuff with God. So there's an endanger of of enjoying stuff without God. We talked about that. But now let's talk about the delight of enjoying stuff with God. Now, given the persistence of our idolatry and hearing about these kinds of things and idolatry being a threat to God's true worship, and many Christians have responded to this. And the way they fight against idolatry is to think of creation as like a hot potato, It's like, enjoy it, but not too much. I mean, put your hands on it, but not as much as you have to. I mean, because good grief, our hearts are so prone to wander and we better be careful. So you better be leery of the pleasures. It's like we act like there's a devil behind every delight. Let me ask you some questions to see if this describes you, all right? Number one, do you feel a low-grade sense of guilt because you enjoy legitimate earthly pleasures? Number two, is this guilt connected to any particular concrete sinful attitude or action? Because in that case, it's true guilt. You should feel it if it's sin. Or is this guilt rooted in a vague sense that you're not enjoying God enough, whatever that means, and that you're enjoying his gifts too much? Number three, are you attempting to detach from creation and God's gifts out of fear of idolatry lest you love them too much and your affections for them surpass your affections for God? Number four, are you overly suspicious of created things, looking at your delight in ice cream and sunny days and hugs from your spouse with almost a wary skepticism, perpetually unsure whether they are growing too precious to you and God is not growing precious enough? Number five, do you have a sense that as you progress in holiness, your enjoyment of things like fresh raspberries and hiking in the mountains and an evening of games and laughter with old friends ought to diminish because you're becoming increasingly satisfied in God alone. Number six, do you regard certain activities such as prayer and worship and Bible reading as inherently more holy than and virtuous than other activities like doing your job or listening to music or taking a nap? This suspiciousness of creation can grow if it's not checked by the Bible. It can grow into a rejection of creation, a call for full abstinence from God's gifts, at least certain gifts, especially those that center on bodily pleasure. And you know what? The New Testament understands this about us. It understands that Christians will have a hard time figuring out how to interact with creation because God has called us to love him supremely as our creator. Turn with me, if you would, to one instance, Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes to some Christians who are struggling with this kind of stuff. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20. He's writing to people who look upon created pleasure as, as a little bit suspect and earthly pleasures as being but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's what he says. He says, some people, when they hear the gospel, when they hear about Christ and his lordship, they so separate from creation and so separate from earthly pleasure because they think that by doing that, they're going to be made more holy. And Paul says, that is nothing for holiness. It does you no good to stop the indulgence of the flesh by treating creation that way. To pursue holiness by stiff-arming creation And created pleasure might appear wise. But Paul says it'll do no good in curbing idolatry. Why? Because sin isn't in the stuff. Sin is in our hearts. And we can just as easily exchange indulgence for asceticism and still be idolaters. Because the flesh is still steering the boat. We've just given up what we considered immorality for morality. Another excellent passage on this, one that we've turned to in our series before, is First Timothy chapter 4. Would you go with me there? Paul writing to Timothy and calling him to teach the church and to, to, to tell, the, tell the believers these things because, again, it's a, it's a Christian issue. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. See, that's asceticism, right? You don't get married. Married, Marriage is less holy than singleness. Or don't eat that food. That food is less holy than other foods. And it, it, he's just talking about appetites. He's talking about earthly desires, sex and food. We feel those desires. And he says, you really want to be heart holy, you need to cut those desires off. And Paul says, you know whose voice is given that? Satan. Satan. God created sex. He gave it boundaries. Marriage. But marriage in and of itself is a created gr- great gift that God has given to be enjoyed by his people. Food. It's created by God. It's, enjoy- it's, it's to be received by God gratefully. Not overindulged in committing gluttony or withdrawing from and fasting excessively because you're afraid it's going to corrupt you in some way. He tells us how we're to interact with this. Notice middle part of verse 3. God created to be received with thanksgiving. There's that Romans 1 echo again, isn't it? Thanksgiving. By those who believe and know the truth. In other words, by Christians. For everything created by God is good. Everything. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if this can happen. So we do have to reject some stuff as Christians, but we don't reject anything that we can do this for if it is received with thanksgiving from the hand of God. If we can bow our heads and sincerely thank God the true biblical God, not the God of our own imagination, but we can truly bow before this God and say, Thank you, Father, for this gift. Then we are to receive it, not reject it. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. In other words, what makes that action holy, what makes that pleasure legitimate, is our receiving it from the hands of God, returning thanks to God, being informed by the word of God. It's informed by the Word of God. It's being shaped and governed by prayer and devotion to God and thanksgiving to Him. And we receive it with joy and a smile on our face and take it all in. Without a tinge of guilt that we're committing idolatry. Because we're not. We received it from His hand. Here, this See, this, this demonic scheme that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy is as old as Eden. The demonic scheme that Paul describes in this passage is as old as The dirt of creation. This is Satan's M.O. Demons love to depict God as miserly. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve? You may eat of any tree in the garden except one. That's one no in a world full of yes. That is our God. That is our God. One no in a world full of yes. Satan doesn't paint God that way, does he? Comes to Adam and Eve. Did God really say you shall not touch any tree in the garden? Do you hear that? Hear that hiss of the serpent right there? What did he do? One yes in a world full of no. That's what Satan wants to do. One, yes. God gives you a little bit of life. But if you take up the cross and follow him, you better be prepared to hate your existence. Did God actually say you can't eat anything around here? I mean, he needs to get with the program. We're a liberated generation. Joe Rigney writes the following in his excellent book, The Things of Earth, which I encourage you to read. A lot of my stuff from my sermon this morning is being gleaned from reading that book and being helped by it. Joe Rigney writes, In the serpent's mouth, God is not a father, but a forbidder. In the serpent's mouth, God is not a father, but a forbidder. A cosmic killjoy who creates pleasures and then denies their indulgence. See, that's what that's what that's what creation sounds like in the serpent's mouth. God made all this, don't touch any of it. This is why Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 because we as Christians need to be reminded of the goodness of creation and God's approval of it for our joy. Gratitude to him and prayer to him and the word of God from him orients and infuses our enjoyment of creation. So let me ask you, whose voice are you listening to these days? Are you listening to the voice of God? who has one no in a world full of yes, who's, who, who has specific sin that he's outlined in the Bible that he loves us, doesn't want us to touch, because it's going to doom us and damn us and destroy us and those we love? Or are we listening to the hiss of the serpent? Ah, to follow God, that's lifeless. Don't do that. He'll ruin your joy. He's going to kill you. Some of you in here, maybe young people who are not Christians yet, the reason you're not a Christian is because you're listening to his voice all the time. You're listening to his voice. I don't want to become a Christian. I'll miss out on life. But just, just, I just want to expose him. He doesn't like this. He doesn't like me telling you this this morning. He doesn't like me telling you this because it's coming out. But it's the truth. And you will not regret one day too soon that you bowed the knee to Christ and gave your life to him. Not one day too soon but you will regret the 15, 20 years you wasted if you ever come to Christ at all. Because today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. But now I'm going back into the danger again. I want to stay with the delight. All right, so how do... Okay, let's just make this practical, all right? We've talked about... Princi- we talked at the principle level. Okay, I'm supposed to receive these gifts with thanksgiving to God. Is that all? That's it? Okay. Well, let's let's... Take it down. Let's push it down into our lives a little bit. So, how how do we know this? How do we know whether or not we're enjoying legitimate earthly pleasure as a gift from God in a non-idolatrous way? How do we know we're doing that? Well, I I don't know specifically, but I can give you general guidelines, alright? So here, here's here's a here's a couple complementary ways of viewing God's gifts to us, alright? There's a comparative approach, and there's the more integrated approach. And I just want to take a minute to, understand, to, to explain these, okay? The comparative approach is this. When we look at God in comparison to his gifts, that's why I call it comparative, we compare God to his gifts. When we do that, something should well up in our souls saying, that's more valuable. God is more valuable. That's why Philippians chapter 3 is in the Bible, right? Where Paul writes his autobiography and says that I count all things as loss... For the surpassing value of knowing him. I mean, Isaiah 40 talks about this, right? It's this over and over again God showing himself and how great he is. And he, he describes the nations like dust on the scales. I mean, in comparison to God, everything he's made is pity, pitiable, and puny. It's not worth our allegiance. It's not worth our devotion. God is. If there were no creation to enjoy, God would still be valuable. God would still be worth it. That's the, and that's the way the Bible talks in places like Psalm 27. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That's what I'll seek after. He's worth everything. Nothing, uh, uh, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. Comparatively. Meaning in comparison to all the earthly joys of creation, in comparison to my marriage and all the joys it brings, in comparison to my children and all the joy they brings, in comparison to hobbies that I have that, that bring joy to me, and in comparison to food and all these things that we enjoy, God's more valuable. God's more valuable. If he takes them away, I'll still be okay. I'll worship him. I'll praise him. This is why God takes things away from us. Like health and children. It's because he loves us and he wants us to belong to him. And if something becomes a tendency toward idolatry for us, now, we can't always find behind every trial some idolatry, so don't misunderstand me. If you're going through a trial right now or struggling through something, it may have nothing to do with idolatry in your life. But it has something to do with God's purifying effects on you. And you need to seek the Lord about that. All right, God, if there's anything in my heart that I'm not seeing, would you please help me to see it? Because we are, we're blind to our stuff a lot of times. And we need God to shine his spirit into our heart through his word, often through the counsel of other people in the church to help us see what we're not seeing. So that's, that's there, but it's not only there all the time. So there's the comparative approach, right? We compare our hearts, we, we compare our delight in creation, we compare our delight in God and we say, okay, if this is gone, he's, he's all I need, right? We don't get bummed if the creation goes away. But there's also the integrated approach, which means when we love God supremely, we are able to integrate our joy in God and our joy in his gifts, receiving from those gifts shafts of glory that draw us back to God. This is why Charles Simeon wrote, we enjoy God in everything and enjoy everything in God when we love God supremely, we are free to love his creation as his creation and not as a God. So that's the more integrated approach. All right. And here's my contention on this. All right. I think when you take the the, the biblical passages about the comparative value of God and how he's to be supreme, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and we're to take the passages about Uh, enjoying His gifts and delighting in Him and worshiping Him for the things He's created, all that, my contention, based on the overwhelming biblical evidence for the goodness of creation and its capacity, Romans 1, to lead us into a deeper knowledge of God, then we ought to devote ourselves to the integrated approach as how we should live the bulk of our lives. With the comparative approach as a periodic test that God will bring into our lives that we might maintain supreme allegiance to him. Did everybody get that? Because that's a big, that's big. That's big, okay? What I'm saying is this. I'm gonna try to break it down, make it very simple. We should live the vast majority of our lives receiving God's gifts with thankfulness from him and not checking our hearts for devils and idolatry every every minute. We should, most of the time, that's the way we, but throughout our lives, God will provide periodic checks in your life where he, will call, where he will say, what is more valuable? Me? And that will come periodically. And it sometimes will come in the form of trials. It sometimes will just come in the way, you'll, you'll read the scriptures one day, or you'll hear a sermon, or you'll be in worship, and God will just awaken you to it. And you'll be like, oh, Lord, help me. And he'll be faithful to you. He loves you. You're his child. He's not going to let you fall into idolatry. Isn't that great news? He's going to shepherd you and be with you and guide you and protect you. He said he will sanctify you completely so that your whole body, soul, will be kept blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's not going to let idolatry rule your life. No way. But at the same time, he wants you to be dominated by gratitude and joy and thanksgiving for every gift, for your family, for your work, for the, the, the things that in life that are enjoyable, that are legitimate, that he has given you, that you receive with thanksgiving and then periodically throughout his life, throughout your life. And you've already had this happen if you've been a Christian for any period of time. You've been reading through the Psalms and you read, Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth has nothing I desire besides you and that's resonated with your heart, and you said, yes, God, yes, you're better. You're better. Even than all that life can give me now or death can take later, you are better, and you are my portion. And God will do stuff like that, and he'll shake us up, um, because he knows that interacting with fallen creation like we are is never just this supremely easy thing, okay? But at the same time, he doesn't want us to be perpetually preoccupied and burdened with the, with the, am I committing idolatry by enjoying this, or am I enjoying God in this? All right, so let me press it down and leave us with some applications. Don Carson calls this, by the way, direct and indirect Godwardness. I like that. What does he mean by that? He says, direct Godwardness involves our conscious, intentional focus on God. It's like devotional reading of scripture, Private prayer, corporate worship, thanksgiving, saying prayers before meals, confessing sin. That's all directly to God. We are speaking directly to God. But he also has a category for indirect Godwardness. What does he mean by that? He means it's a subconscious focus on God himself while actively engaging with the world that God made. The world that reveals him at every point including with indirect godwardness are eating meals, mowing the lawn, playing soccer, washing the dishes, making love, programming a computer, for those of you who can do that, (laughs) flying an airplane, reading a novel, so on. It's all the indirect, the things where we're not consciously and deliberately focused on God. So he has these two different categories. So then, how do these types of godwardness relate, direct and indirect? Well, Think about this. We structure our life around regular rhythms of direct Godwardness, don't we? We gathered here this morning. We gather on the Lord's Day for an opportunity to devote ourselves to direct Godwardness. We gather for prayer, for an opportunity to devote ourselves to direct Godwardness, whether that's privately or corporately. And we have, we, we, we devotionally read scripture, which we should be most days, in, in the scriptures, hearing from God, praying to him, acknowledging him, thanking him before meals, thanking him before, praying to him before uh, difficult situations that you're facing in your day. You know, that thing you wake up and you're dreading, right? The thing that, you know, I don't want to deal with this today, but you got to deal with it. And so God's calling you, talk to me, talk to me. Let's pray about this. And then you move into the situation with confidence that he's with you and that he's going to help you. So we engage with God's world fully and frequently Focusing our thoughts and intentions and affections on God in a direct and purposeful way, and this is what this is what a godly life looks like it 's this rhythm in a humorous illustration. Let me give you a humorous illustration of taking meals for an example, all right You have the direct godwardness, at least most of us I think pray before a meal and then with our family or by ourselves. then we engage in eating. listen to this humorous example of what happens when you engage in direct godwardness as you 're eating, okay. So he says, a simple illustration can illustrate this. When we sit down to eat a meal, whether it's a holiday feast or fast food, we engage with God directly, thanking him for the daily bread and fellowship around the table, commending our eating and drinking and conversing to him in the name of his son. Then we turn our attention to the food and the friends and the family and the conversation, enjoying the flavors and the smells and directing our thoughts and intentions to those things around us. In other words, we pray before the meal, then really enjoy the meal, and then perhaps at the end, we thank God again for such a delightful time. Contrast this with the attempt to go Godward directly at every point in the meal. Imagine someone interrupting the conversation to bow his head and say a short prayer after every bite. Hold on a minute, Jim. Let me praise the Lord for the spice in this salsa. Now, what were you saying about mom's surgery? This might have the appearance of piety, but would actually be rude and unloving to others at the table. Could we really say that this is what it means to consider others more important than ourselves? I think that's a helpful illustration. G.K. Chesterton said, you say grace before meals. All right, but I say grace before I play and before the opera, or for me, maybe it's the movie or the rock concert, and grace before I open a book and grace before stretching and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and grace before I dip the pen in ink. What's his point? My whole life is permeated by thanksgiving to God for His great gifts. G.K. Chesterton is illustrating what Douglas Wilson calls anchor points. Anchor points in our lives. You pray before you study, or you cook, or you clean, or you get out of bed to a messy house and loud children, if you live at the Redfern house, or help a customer, or write an email asking God to help and bless and orient your heart to Him and His kingdom. Then... After you've sought God, you devote yourself wholeheartedly whatever task is in front of you. So if you run into a snag, a tough situation, a difficult person, an unexpected accident, a belligerent customer, a hiccup in the process, you take a moment, offer a prayer for help, and then get back to work or you punctuate your efforts with brief prayers of thanksgiving and adoration as the Spirit moves you. When it's all done, whether it's a specific task or the day's labor, you thank God for His grace and commend yourself to keeping, to His keeping while you sleep. Isn't that good stuff? So helpful. Such an integrated approach to life. That's what a Christian life is. It isn't this, I'll spend five minutes, read my Bible, and do whatever I want the rest of the day and pray for the forgiveness of my sins at the end of it. That's a real shallow Christian life, man. I'm talking about going through life with a devoted heart. With a heart that, as you interact with difficulties, you talk to God. And as you interact with joys and things that thrill your heart and make you cry, and like, God, how could you give this to me? You are amazing. Thanking Him for it. It's that sort of heart. And the, the, the people I want to be around the most in this church, and this church is really full of them, are people like that. People who saturate their lives. And it doesn't come off as perfunctory and religious and all that stuff. It comes off as real because that's what it means to walk with God. Right? It's what it means to walk with God. I love these examples. I Man, I, I've got so many. I'll share just a few more and then we got to quit. This is, this is another example uh, that I read this week from this excellent book, Things of Earth. He's sharing about a time of interacting with his dad. And he shares memories with his dad as they get older together. And I just want you to hear this and listen to the flavor. Get the flavor of what's going on here, all right? I have a memory, he says. An early morning in 1993, an 11-year-old me rolls over in bed as the sun peeks through the blinds. Blah, school day. I feel a hand on my back. It rubs for a moment and then gently scratches. I lift my shoulders, prodding the fingers for a little little more. It's a familiar routine and the fingers don't fail. The back rub turns to a pat. Time to get up, buddy. I roll over. My dad sits on the edge of Sorry, I know where the story's going. So. <laughs> Whew. I roll over. My dad sits on the edge of my bed, dressed in a button-down shirt and dark pants. He's been up for a while. He's showered and shaved and ready for work. I can smell his aftershave. I stumble bleary-eyed into the kitchen. (sighs) The cereal, milk, and bowl are on the counter. (sighs) My lunch is packed. Turkey and mustard on bread. Grapes and ranch Doritos. My dad knows what I like. He picks up his briefcase, (laughs) kisses me on the forehead, and heads out the door. A lesson in eschatology. There's something worth getting out of bed for. There's hope for the future. Fast forward 15 years. Home for Christmas. I've always loved the holidays. My dad slowly walks out of his room, shuffling his feet. His hair is disheveled. His beard unshaven he's wearing an old t-shirt and pajama bottoms. It's one thirty in the afternoon. He pauses and looks around with apprehension and a tinge of panic in his eyes. The look of his face unnerves me for a moment. I hate dementia. here, Dad. Come sit here on the couch. I'll get you something to drink. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Isaiah 46, 4. Oh, Lord, please do. One more jump. This time, two years forward, Christmas time again. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He sits, if you can call it that, in a special chair. It's been months since he's walked. He weighs about 100 pounds, skin and bones, but his skin looks still looks good. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. My mom sits next to him, holding his ever-shaking hands. Damn Parkinson's. He breathes in a low wheeze. It sounds awful, but the nurses say it's normal. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Those hands, they held me when I was young. They rubbed my back during church services. They taught me how to throw and hit. Keep your eye on the ball, he'd say. Step Toward the pitcher and keep your head down. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I watch my mom as he searches his face, lovingly looking for recognition for something beyond the vacant stairs. She's walked with him through every bit of the slow death, through diagnosis and experimental treatments and cautious optimism and crushing loss at a sudden turn for the worse. This is how she's envisioned her golden years. This is not how she's envisioned her golden years. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Billy, Billy, hey, sweetie. She catches his eye. A flash of something and a smile plays at his lips. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He there, or hey there, he says, and a chuckle rises up from his throat. We all smile and laugh with him, his eyes darting from person to person. She leans in to give him a kiss, and he puckers. Not everything in the old mind is lost. She leans back, he stays puckered, we laugh as he kisses as she kisses him again, still holding his trembling hand. Covenants run deep till death do us part. This mystery is profound, and it refers to Christ in the church. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. See that integrated life it 's a light it 's a holistic thing it 's a thing that receiving everything from his hand, even the hard things, and responding to him. And I saw it this week, personally, too, just as my in, in, in a totally different situation. But I'm sitting out in the backyard with my kids and I'm watching them play. And Chutson runs inside and he's got to put his Spider-Man costume on because he's got to rescue his sisters. That's the Bible, folks. God created the world so he can get a bride for his son. And I was just struck again. It's built into the DNA. It's built into who we are. And I was blessed all over again. And I was thanking God for that little gift in the faces of my children. And you'll see that again and again and again throughout your life. And we will miss out on so many delights and so many joys if we don't see our God as this lavish, good, great God. And it turns every moment of the ordinary into extraordinary because we're relating to him in it. And he wants us to have eyes to see that. And so we need to pray that God will give us eyes for what he's doing in the moment. And he will gladly open our eyes to many things that will thrill our hearts and change us forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity together to think through these last seven weeks of the precious things of life. They're not mundane. They're not ordinary. They're the things that you have infused with purpose and meaning. Things like work and family and marriage and food. I mean, these are the things that we're going to spend the vast majority of our lives doing. And we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see what you are doing and to teach us lessons and ways that that you would reveal your glory in these created things so that we might receive them from your hand and return thanks to you for every good and perfect gift that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Well, in response, why don't we stand to our feet and sing verses 2 and 4 of How Great Thou Art. When through the woods, forest glades I wander, and hear the
2: birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look
6: down
2: from lofty mountain range And hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to me ta
5: Just one announcement before we go for those of you who are guests with us who are interested in learning more about what it means to be a member of heritage we're starting a new membership class called hbc starting point next week um, july 26th i believe and that will be a meeting in pastor ted's office upstairs if you'd like to be a part of that class feel free to talk to pt um, at the back or sign the, the paper that's out in the foyer and we'd love to let you know more about our church and and uh, get to know you as well so let me leave you with this a reminder of what we heard at the beginning every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the father of lights with whom there is no change or shifting shadow god bless you